Father, thanks for a moment to be still this morning. In the midst of busy weeks that most of us have, it's good to come into a space and just be still. And we pray in that stillness uh, as we look at this story that is so familiar to many of us that you would give us new eyes to see details we haven't seen before. You would give us new ears to hear the things that you desire for us to hear, that you would give us new hearts to be transformed more into your image. Father, we need your spirit to show up to do that this morning. We cannot do it in our own efforts, and you're a God that rescues and brings us into light and to truth. So help us this morning. Do that for us this morning. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Well, I, I got in an argument with one of my friends recently over peanut butter. We were having this conversation, and we started talking about um, food that we grew up with, and it led down this trail of, like, what peanut butter your mom bought. And I was saying, like, man, when my mom would buy um, Jiffy peanut butter, I got really excited. And then he was like, Jiffy peanut butter? I was like, yeah, Jiffy peanut butter. And he goes, this is no Jiffy peanut butter. It's called Jif. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's called Jiffy. Like, I, I, it might be called Jif now, but when I was a kid, I'm pretty sure... It was called Jiffy. And so what do you do when you go back and forth and you can't agree on something? You pull out your supercomputer out of your pocket and you go to the Google machine and you say, is it Jif or Jiffy? How many people think it was Jiffy? Did, at one point it was Jiffy peanut butter, right? A couple hands go up, not many. <laughs> Thank you, Quinn. Uh, we're all wrong that raised our hand. It was never Jiffy. Um, and so I started researching, like, why in my mind did I think it was Jiffy peanut butter at some point in my life? And I realized, well, there's a Jiffy Pop. That's a popcorn that you buy. There's Jiffy Lube. And then there's Skippy peanut butter. And so Jiff has always been Jiff. It's never been Jiffy. And so I was wrong in that moment. As I was looking and researching um, why I was wrong, which happens often, um, I realized that there's something called the Mandela Effect. Are you guys familiar with this? Now, this is like a pop psychology phenomenon. It's not based in any real science or anything like that. But the Mandela effect is certain people have certain memories about things, and they're pretty sure that those things are right. And then when they do the research, they were like, well, I was, that, that's not accurate. And they're like, that had to be it. That, like, and it's not just you. It's like multiple people feeling this same way. Um, the reason it's called the Mandela Effect is because uh, Nelson Mandela, who some of you guys are aware of, uh, he goes, uh, gets arrested, he goes into prison in Africa in the 60s, and there's multiple people that were like, he died in prison in 1980. Somewhere in the 80s, Nelson Mandela died, and multiple people think that. Why did we think that? Because that's not true. He gets out of prison in 1990s, he becomes the president of Africa, and he ends up dying in 2013. But many people are like, why do I think he died in prison in the 80s? So I need your help. We're going to do a little survey. We're going to do the top three Mandela uh, effects. So here's the first one, okay? Oh. We've got these cartoon characters up here that you might be familiar with. They had books, and then they had a television show. Now, is it the Berenstain Bears, E-I-N, or is it the Berenstain Bears, A-I-N? Who thinks it's E-I-N, the Berenstain Bears, okay? Who thinks it's the Berenstain Bears? Okay, the room's somewhat split. Um, Berenstein, you are wrong. It's never been the Berenstein Bears, but you're convinced in your hair, the Berenstein Bears, right? Like, no, it's not. 
a lot of the reason people think that's the case is because Steen is a common surname for people. And Stain is like, these bears were about family values and doing the right thing. Like Stain sounds like bad. Steen sounds better. But it's actually the Baron Stain bears. Okay, one more. Um, Fruit of the Loom. Okay. There's two logos up there. Who thinks the Fruit of the Loom, at some point in your life, the underwear, the t-shirts had a cornucopia next to it in their logo. You've seen that, you go like that, that's that at some point. Who thinks it was no cornucopia? Okay. It never had a cornucopia ever, like ever in its history of logos. Never. And you're going like, I'm sure, I'm sure it did. Okay. There's one more. Um, the favorite game we all love to play, Monopoly. That's a joke because everybody hates Monopoly, even though it's a popular game. It's five hours and everybody argues at the end of it. Monopoly, the Monopoly man, does he have a monocle as part of his design or does he not? How many people think he has a monocle as part of his design? And you're wondering, does he have a monocle? That, like, who, who thinks he doesn't have a monocle? You all are right, okay? He doesn't have a monocle, never has in the history. Since this character was developed in the 1930s, he's never had a monocle. Now. A lot of people think because like Mr. Peanut has a monocle and a top hat and so they're kind of crossing over their memories. But this Mandela effect happens all the time in a ton of variety of places where there's people like, no, he definitely had a monocle and then the other half are like, no, that's not true. The reason I bring all this up is because we're in 1 Samuel 17 today. This is a story of David and Goliath. This is maybe one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. Even if you never grew up in church or don't know church, you are somewhat familiar probably with David and Goliath. And I think there's a lot of Mandela effect going on in this story, honestly, because often it's pulled out of its original context and it's used in a way that makes us go, yeah, that's what David and Goliath is about. But what we're going to see today as we study the chapter in the context of our series, we've been going through this series called We Want a King. We're looking at the first three kings of Israel, God's nation in the Old Testament through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings. And we're looking at the rise and fall of Saul, David, and Solomon. We're going to see what this story is actually all about. Why do we somehow cross over what we believe about this story? I think there's a couple reasons why it has this Mandela effect to it in some lanes. Um, and Joseph Campbell, who's a professor of literature, he wrote a book in 1949 called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. So in this book, he has been examining literature and stories that we tell about myths and heroes. And he goes, there's a certain pattern to a hero that he builds out in his book that has been used constantly in films and in books and in television of the archetype of the hero. And these characters all have a role, but the main hero of the story undergoes a particular journey in this template. Uh, the journey has several steps, and it allows the hero to go through several stages, suffer setbacks, but eventually emerge triumphantly. And again, I think that combined with our culture kind of being birthed in this rugged individualism and this consumeristic triumphalism, kind of like it's all about you as a consumer. Everything you hear is about how to make you happy and that you should win. That's the American dream. That's what it's all about. Those two things kind of combined over the story of David and Goliath begins to subconsciously form us when we hear this story or tell this story that we're the hero. 
Like we're the hero of all of our own stories subconsciously because of these things. And we think we are David. We're the ordinary person that musters up enough courage to fight our giants. And because we can win and we can beat our giants. And that's really not what this story is about. If you read it in its context and you understand what the Bible is trying to do with 1 Samuel chapter 17. But I also think we can overcorrect, right? Uh, even in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen this even in Christian circles where uh, we go, well, we're not the hero of the story. We're not David. And some pastors are kind of like, like, you're not David in the story. Have you heard this before? Like, you're, you're not David. And I think I understand what those pastors are trying to do when they're communicating to certain crowds. They're trying to say, you're not the hero of the story. But I think it can kind of overcorrect in a bad way where we go, okay, well, we're not David in the story. We're only the Israelites, like, hiding behind everybody and we're cowards. But I think there are some things that we should pull out of this story in the right context to understand, no, we're not the hero. But if you read the context of the story... David is not the hero either. And there's things we can learn from David's behavior if you follow Jesus and you walk with Jesus to go, how can I trust the Lord for his spirit to work in me as I deal with things that seem like there's no victory ahead? So that's what we're going to look to do as we kind of hold that tension. I love Dale Ralph Davis's quote where he says this. He says, David will be delivered, not because he has true grit, but because he knows the true God. That's really what this story is about, knowing the true God, experiencing the true God, remembering how this true God is a rescuer. He is the hero, and he rescues his people. That's what it's about. As much as the story is about David and Goliath, the chapter is just as much about David and Saul. As we've been talking about Saul and David, and, and we got introduced to David last week, we'll continue to see Saul show up in the narrative, even though David has been anointed as the future king we saw last week in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The story has to do with Saul and David as well, and the narrator is comparing and contrasting them constantly throughout our text. We have to pay attention to that in the midst of the story. So let's read the story together. And what I would love for us to do is the best we can put on some fresh lenses to understand what's actually being said in the true context of the story and look at the details of what the Bible is trying to communicate to us so we don't get caught up in this Mandela effect of what it looks like to uh, have us be the hero of the story. Because that's really, again, how this story gets played out all the time in culture. I was in my buddy's garage this last week, and he has turned his garage into a weight room, and we're working out and kind of exercising, and at one point in the midst of our conversation, he has music going. He goes, like, what's the song? Like, what's the one song, man, that just gets you jacked, like, to, like, really lift really, really hard? Like, it, it really motivates you on another level. And so we started kicking around these different bands and songs, and uh, mine was kind of pocketed in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, we're talking about like Metallica and Guns N' Roses and Rage Against the Machine. And it's like, if I hear a Rage Against the Machine song, 
Like, I want to run through a window. Like, I do. I'm like, something about it, when I hear it, it does something physically to my body to go, okay, let, it's probably not very good all the time. But it's like, let's go. Let's do this. And the story of David and Goliath has been used for centuries to motivate the underdog to say, you, if you have enough courage, you can do it. You can face your giants and you can actually win if you have the courage of David. Let's find out if that's true or if it's the Mandela effect. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It'll be on the screen as well. There's some Bibles in the seats in front of you if you need a Bible. You can look on your phone if you need to. We're going to walk through um, the pockets of this chapter. Some we will read directly. Some I will sum up just for the context of how long it is. And then we'll say, like, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? So 1 Samuel chapter 17, let's start in verse 1. It says, now the Philistines were gathering their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soka and Azekah in Ephraim's Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up the line of the battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain one side and Israel stood on the mountain the other side with a valley in between them. Let's stop here for just a second, just for context. Why is the narrator giving us these details? What is important? If you're not familiar with the story, if you're joining us for the first time, God's people are the nation of Israel and they've been fighting these battles against other nations that are opposed to God's people. And in this story we see that they're right on the edge of fulfilling the promise that God gives them for their promised land. So if you're not familiar with the Old Testament story, God's people get rescued out of slavery. We see that in the book of Exodus. They've been enslaved and they're crying out to God. And this God, this God of the Bible is a rescuer. And he sends rescue for these people. And they come out and they get rescued. And in the midst of them going to a promised land that God has said, I will provide this for you, they continue to be disobedient. And because of that disobedience, they end up wandering for 40 years in this wilderness. They finally get uh, in that 40 years to the edge of the promised land. And if you remember in Numbers 13, if you know the story, uh, Moses, who's the leader, sends in these spies. He sends in 12 of them in Numbers 13. He says, go scout the land. We're about to go into this promised land that God has promised us, but we need to see who's there. The spies go in. You know how long they go in for? 40 days. Okay, there's some traction here with the number 40. They go in for 40 days and they come back and they report. And 10 of them are like, no, it's, I mean, the, the land is amazing, but there's no way, like the, the people that inhabit the land, you know what they say? They're giants. They're huge. They're strong. There's no way we can overcome them. And then there's two spies, Joshua and Caleb. They're like, no, if God is going to give us this land, he'll give us this land. Let's move forward. Right? You remember that story. The reason this is important and the details of the land are important and the geography are important is because this is kind of fulfilling the end of getting into the promised land. So even Goliath, as a figurehead, which we'll see, he kind of represents all of the Canaanites. He's big and tall and strong, and there's no way we can defeat him. Oh, by the way, how many days is Goliath coming out and challenging people? 40 days. We'll see that in the story. That's going to continue to catch traction. Again, the narrator is dropping us intentional clues about what this story is actually all about. Let's pick it up in verse 4. And there came out of the camp 
of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Stop there just to give us some context. So um, what the narrator is trying to do in the details is not necessarily how tall Goliath is in the context of, as Americans, we go like, what's the exact measurement? How tall is Goliath? We want to know those things. The original readers wouldn't go like, so a cubit is a measurement from your elbow to your pinky. So, uh, or not your pinky, your middle finger. And so it's kind of a fluid measurement in the midst of that because like, who, who, whose armor are you using, right? So um, in this context, it's saying that Goliath is about nine feet tall, nine inches with this. But even Old Testament scholars have said, well, the Septuagint says it was four cubits, which puts Goliath at about six foot, nine inches. So there's a range of like, he's maybe seven foot to all the way up to 10 feet. But again, we don't need to get lost in the detail. The whole point of what the narrator is doing is saying, this dude is unbeatable. You look at him and you just don't know what to, there's no way that you are going to beat him, Israel. There's no way. And Saul, as we saw, he's head above everybody else. He's as taller than everybody else. So who knows how tall he is? but he's still nervous. Let's keep going in the story. Verse eight, let's pick it up. Here's what Goliath does. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This common theme as we've been walking through, God's people continue to get afraid of these leaders and these people that are opposing them. We saw that even in chapter 11 with King Nahash. Okay, verse 12, let's keep going. We get introduced, David comes into the picture. Now David was the son of the Ephraite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. And the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons, Jesse, had followed Saul into the battle, and the names of his three sons went into the battle, were Elab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Verse 14, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistines came forward and took stand morning and evening. Let's pause there just for a second. So it's, again, explaining who uh, the sons of Jesse are. The older three are there. Um, David, if, we, if you remember from last chapter, he has been playing the harp for Saul. And so now it's saying there's some time that's passed. He's been going back and forth to go back to be a shepherd at, at his father's house with uh, the house of Jesse. And then he comes back and spends some time with Saul. And then he goes back and he becomes a shepherd. Well, now this happens where this war breaks out. The three older sons are already there. And verse 16 again tells us, Goliath comes out every morning and every evening challenging God's people. Let's fight. Let's do this. 
So what happens in verses 27 or 17 through 27? Let me just sum it up for you. Um, Jesse says, hey, David, I want you to go and I want you to take some food. Check up on your older brother. So David is like the DoorDash at this time. He brings some cheese. He checks in on everything. And in the midst of that, he hears what Goliath is saying. Because Goliath is coming out every morning and every evening and nobody is challenging him. And the people are scared. They're so scared that Saul says like, hey, if you go out, you'll get this money. If you go and fight this Goliath, I will give you this money. Not only will I give you money, but I'll also give you my daughter as a wife. And so Saul is going like, hey, we need some type of motivation because nobody wants to step up to this guy, which Saul should be doing. Uh, so in the midst of that, uh, David shows up, he delivers the food, and he hears Goliath, and he's going like, what is going on here? Like, why, why is nobody stepping up to this guy to fight him? And he says specifically, he goes, uh, this guy is defying the armies of the living God. And he starts saying it in the camp. Now imagine 40 days where uh, the nation of Israel, they're just going like, well, I'm not going to go. Are you going to go? I'm not going to fight this guy. Are you going to fight this guy? And little David shows up and is like, what's the problem? Like, why isn't anybody going out? Like, how annoying would that kind of be after 40 days of nobody going out? And then this little dude's coming in and being like, why doesn't anybody go fight him? Let's see what happens. Verse 28. Now, Elab, his eldest brother, the eldest brother of David, when he heard uh, that he had spoke to the men, Elab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Verse 29, and David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and he spoke in the same way, and people answered him again as before. Let's pause there. So David is kind of going like, why is anybody challenging this dude? The older brother says like, David, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I know your heart, it's evil. Man, have you ever tried to do the right thing and somebody challenges your motives? You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to say the right thing. And somebody, because of their own insecurities, comes after you and challenges your heart? This is what's happening in this moment. How does David respond in this moment? I love what he does in verse 29. He seems to have a posture of humility and curiosity. He doesn't go back to his brother and be like, well, why didn't you step up? Like, I'm just saying what, he goes, what have I said? Like, like, help me understand why you're being so defensive right now. We don't seem to get a response from his brother. And then I love what David does after that in verse 30. What does he say? He turns away and continues to do what he does. So when people are challenging your motives and you know you're trying to do the right thing and they're coming after you, you can be curious, you can be humble, which I think is the right posture to have and go like, help me understand. I, I don't quite get it. Help me understand why you see this. And if there's no response or that person is just going to go after you more because of their own insecurities, you just shake the dust and walk away. Continue to do what God is telling you to do. Verse 31, when the words of David spoke were heard they repeated them before Saul so everybody's coming back and telling Saul what David is saying and he sent for him and David said to Saul let no man's heart fail because of him because of Goliath your servant will go and fight with this Philistine and Saul said to David you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with uh, with him for your youth and he has been a man of war since his youth 
Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear I took the and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck it and delivered it out of his mouth. He rose up against me and I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David just going after the beard. That's, I, can't, I wish I could see that. Uh, verse 36, so your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he's defiled the armies of the living God. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, I can't go out with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistines. Now, these stones, some of us think like if we're at a riverbank and we see these smooth stones to skip them, they're real tiny, kind of like small little bubbles. But that's not really the size of these stones. They're actually like the size, most Old Testament scholars think it's like the size of a baseball just so you have context for what he is going into the battle with. Verse 41, and the Philistines moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I mean, can you imagine Goliath every morning and every evening going like, give me somebody to fight, and then they send out David, and he's like, are you kidding me? This, this pretty little young man, like, are, like, are you serious right now? This is who you're going to send to me. That's kind of his posture and his attitude. Verse 43 says, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Here's how David responds to that, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give your dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword of the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. Verse 48, then the Philistines rose and came and drew near to meet David, and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and the stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Let's stop there just for the moment and understand what is this story trying to tell us. Again, as we read it in its context and we start to understand some of the clues that the narrator is dropping for us, who is actually the hero of the story? 
David, I don't think, would say he is. It's clear in the text. If we look back at your Bible, verse 37, the Lord delivered me from the lion and the bear. Verse 45, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Verse 46, the day, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand or our hand. Verse 47, the Lord saves not with the sword or the spear, for the battle is Lord's. It's clear that this story is trying to communicate to us that David is not the hero. God is the hero. He is the rescuer of our enemies. And we see that he uses David as his instrument of rescue, just like he used Saul in chapter 11 as his instrument of rescue. You remember that story that was not too long ago that we looked at where Saul is king and people are scared because there's this king Nahash that's threatening to take over the, the, the area, to gouge their eyes out, and he's mean and scary. And Saul goes like, why isn't anybody doing anything? And then what does the text say? The spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul. And Saul is used as an instrument to bring God's people victory. As we saw last week, what happens to David as the transfer of power or future power is he's anointed as king. What does it say? The spirit leaves Saul and rushes on to David. What is the Bible trying to communicate to us? Clearly that the Lord is the hero. He is the rescuer. But he uses his people in the context of his spirit working in and through them. So it's not David's courage that he's pulling himself up from his bootstrap and he's going to go out and fight this guy. It's the spirit of the Lord that is with David that gives him the courage to fight Goliath. And when we look at some of the context of the, the, the contrast between Saul and David, here's what we see. We see that Saul is looking without the Spirit and forgetting what God has done. Saul's looking without the Spirit and forgetting what God has done. And David is looking with the Spirit, remembering what God has done. That's the difference. The narrator is clearly trying to show us that the Spirit is the difference maker when we're fighting enemies. When we look at Saul and thinking about him looking at the situation, the circumstances, without the spirit that is now gone, and he forgets. It's like, Saul, you just had a victory a couple chapters ago. Now there's been multiple years that have gone by in between chapter 11 and what we're seeing in chapter 17, but, God, but Saul forgets that God delivers him, that God uses him. Man, I don't know about you, but do you ever forget how God has rescued you? When you're in a new circumstances and your back is against the wall and it doesn't make any sense how you're going to get out of this, I don't know about you, but I get tunnel vision pretty quick and I just look at my circumstances and I totally forget what God has done. I totally forget how God has rescued me multiple times in a very similar situation as this. I totally forget it. And what Saul is doing is he's looking, now that the Spirit has left him, he's looking from a human perspective and he's forgetting what God has done as rescue. How do we see that in the text with Saul? We see that he's hiding. He's scared at the beginning of the text. We see that when Goliath approaches, he's looking just from a human perspective. He's going, there's no way anybody can beat this dude. There's no way. That's why we're not even going to do anything. We don't know what to do because Saul is only looking, not with the spirit, but with human eyes. And he's going like, this doesn't make any sense. And then he tries his best, right? He goes, well, maybe if I throw some money at him, right? He looks from a human perspective. This might solve the problem. 
if you go, you'll get a lot of money and you'll get to marry my daughter. Maybe that will motivate people enough to step to the table, which is a very human way to look at the problem. He's not looking at it through the lens of the spirit. And then when David steps up and says, I'll, I'll go, Saul continues to look through human eyes and he goes, you, <laughs> you can't beat him. Like, you're just a youth and he's been uh, fighting since his youth. There's no way you're going to do it. And then David convinces him. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he convinces him. And so Saul goes, okay, well, again, he's still looking from a human perspective. He's not looking from the spirit. And he's going, okay, well, if you're going to do this, you need these things. Here's my armor. This is how you win a human battle. He gives him his helmet. He gives him his shield. He gives him his sword. And he's, he's going like, if you're going to succeed, you need these things. And from a human perspective, Saul's probably right. Have you ever been pressed up against a situation? And somebody's going, you have to have these things to succeed. You have to have your college degree. You have to have three months of saving in the bank. You have to have the right person that you're going to, like, and none of those things are wrong. None of those things are bad. But if you're only relying on those things, you're only looking from a human perspective. And sometimes you won't step forward in faith because people are going, no, you don't have the right things to take the next step. This is what Saul is doing for David. And it's so interesting to me that when we see God's people go into battle often in the Old Testament, what does God do? He starts stripping away their resources, <laughs> right? In the story of Gideon, they've got all these men, and God's like, ah, it's actually too many men, because I don't want people to think it was your own hand, it was your own power that delivered you from this. No, I'm the rescuer. So what are we going to do? We're going to whittle it away. We're going to take these resources away, so you have to trust in faith. That's what this moment feels like with the armor. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to send him out with just a little bit, so it's clear that I am the rescuer. I am the one that gets the credit and gets the glory. Man, it's the same reason that works don't save us. Right? If you're a Christian in here, you know that your good works, being a good person and, and the right way to live, it doesn't, it doesn't save you because you can't live up to that standard. And so God begins to take away certain things and strip away certain things, and it's painful, and you're going, well, I kind of rely on this God for this situation. I kind of need this structure. And he goes, actually, we're going to take that away because we want you to understand that I'm the reason that you have rescued good for us to be reminded of that. And then again, Saul just forgets. He forgets how God's delivered him. He forgets that God has rescued him. And again, I don't know about you, but man, I forget often how God has rescued me in certain situations. So what are the fights that you are dealing with right now? Right? Maybe it's a job-related fight. You're up against somebody that you work with or work for, and you're going like, this is bad. Like, I don't like this, I'm not sure what to do. And you can get human wisdom all day long from people of saying this or doing this, but like, are you looking with human perspective or are you looking from a spiritual perspective to go, God, how do you need to rescue me in this? Maybe it's a career situation. Maybe it's a financial situation. And like, you have a mountain of debt and you're going, there's no way I can, pay, I can barely pay the interest on this thing. I know my wife and I have been in ministry, full-time ministry for over 20 years which we've always relied on people to come alongside us and to give on our behalf and be on our support team. And man, there's been so many times where a bill comes in and it's like, I don't know how we're gonna pay this. Like literally it does not add up. It will not make sense. 
And then God goes, do you trust me? I'm stripping away. Do you trust me? And as we take steps of faith, my wife and I go, okay, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, but we want to build our faith on you and not our circumstances. He provides. So the more you build that faith muscle, the quicker you get, just like David, the quicker you get to going, okay, I don't know how this is going to work, but I've seen you do it before, God, and I believe you can do it again. Help me understand that. Maybe it's a relationship that you are in the midst of battling. <laughs> Whether it's your spouse or a close friend and, man, you guys just keep going like this or something has happened where you feel like the rug got pulled out from underneath you and you go, I don't know how we're going to make it. I don't know. I don't know. We can, it's not going to make sense. And you're looking at only from a human perspective instead of going, God, I have your spirit inside of me if you're a Christian. And you go, okay, what does this look like? How do I remember how you've delivered me? from all these scenarios in the past. Like, is God big enough to rescue you in your scenario? He is. He's big enough. He's bigger than any Goliath. He's bigger than anything you're facing. But we forget all the time. We forget and we look with human eyes instead of looking in the context of the Spirit and remembering what God's done for us. How does David look at the situation? Because he has a spirit upon him, he's looking with spiritual lenses and he's remembering what God has done. Right? When he gets pressed up and they're like, you can't do it. What does he say? What does he tell Saul? He's like, actually, I've seen God rescue me a couple of times. He rescued me as I went after and I was shepherding his flock. And he rescued me as I fought this bear, as I fought this lion. He rescued me. This dude is no problem. He's no problem in comparison. I have a friend, and um, he was preaching this passage, and he was talking about how he was watching his kids swim, and he has two boys and a girl, and the girl's the youngest, and they were in the pool, and they were hanging out and having a good time, and all of a sudden, he saw the two older brothers gang up on their little sister, which is typical, right? That's, we have two boys and a girl. That happens. Don't mess with my daughter. She will cut you. Um, <laughs> and her brother said, oh, your daughter's so sweet. I was like, you see her at home. She's it's next level. Um, Anyway, uh, they're in the pool, and the brothers are, like, starting to come after the young daughter with these pool noodles, right, like swords, like, we're going to just destroy you. And all of a sudden, the daughter sees her dad get up and go to the back of the pool and sneak in. And, like, the boys don't see it, and she, she just is like, come at me. Like, and they're like, like we're going we're gonna to destroy you. <laughs> what you, what, you don't have a gun underneath you. Like, we're going to kill you. And the dad just is creeping up. And she sees her eyes are on her father. And she goes, I know he can destroy these kids. And that's exactly what he does. <laughs> he grabs them and throws them under and tickles them and the whole thing. Like how often do we forget that we have a father that loves us, that can rescue us in any situation, in any circumstance. If you're the Christian, this is where your hope is found, that you have a God that is bigger, that you have a God that rescues you, and you just get to stand there and smile in opposition. If you're not a Christian, you're going to be exhausted by trying to put this armor on that the world tells you to put on. 
And you're going to get results. Maybe sometimes you do okay, but at the end of the day, you're going to be empty. At the end of the day, you're not going to get what you want. That's the difference between the Christian God and all these other gods, that this God fights for you. He is the rescuer. Every other God, you have to do, 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 strive, strive, strive. And hopefully your striving outweighs your bad deeds. But the beauty of the gospel is we have a king that fights for us. Just like we see David at the end of this story, he goes in verse 50, the end of verse 50, it says, man, he doesn't have a sword, and he walks to Goliath with no sword, and now he takes Goliath's sword, and he chops off his head, and the instrument, the weapon that was going to kill David, he uses to kill his enemy. Jesus goes to the weapon that's meant to kill him, the cross. And he uses the cross to kill the enemy of sin and death. We have a savior. We have a good king that rescues us. Can we be people that remember that? Can we be quicker to remember the times that Jesus has rescued us in our dark moments? When we sing, when we respond, we should be using our imagination for those times that God has rescued us that we can say, hey, if I trust Jesus with my life and I give my life to him, the payment is done. I now have the spirit inside of me and I can see differently. I have different eyes. God, help me. Remind me of where you've rescued me when my back is against the wall. That's the hope and beauty of the Christian. If you don't follow Jesus, I don't know where you get your hope. This is the hope for us. Let's be men and women that follow Jesus, that ask the Spirit to remind us where he's rescued us. So when we get in those situations, and hey, listen, this is just, you do life, and you're going to get in these situations. We just live in a broken, busted up world. You do enough life, this is going to happen. Are you going to trust your own courage or are you going to go, no, I have a God that rescues me? That's the hope of the gospel this morning. Let's be those types of people. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you are the great rescuer. Thanks that we get to see that in the story. Father, help us be people that model our lives after David in the context of trusting you, of seeing our circumstances with spiritual eyes, of knowing that you are bigger you're bigger than any of our circumstances. Help us trust you quicker as the rescuer. Would you remind us of that? Because, Father, we, we just forget. We're going to forget the next thing we're really up against. I know for me that is true. When, when something comes that I, I'm, not surpri I'm surprised by, I, I get thrown off balance, and I forget that you are the rescuer of my circumstances. God, we want to be people that trust a good king and King Jesus. That don't, we don't rely on ourselves or others, but we rely on you. Help us do that this morning as we respond. God, we need you. We ask that you would do it in and through us. We pray it in your name. Amen.